0: Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Masha, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to have you and to speak with you. Thanks for having me. So you are a litigator with Fredrickson and Byron in Minneapolis.
1: Can you share your
0: background and how you ended up there for almost 16 years?
1: Yeah. Um, so I knew that I wanted to become a lawyer in high school. I was like on the debate team, did mock trial. And I just thought law would be super interesting and fun. And I, I went to undergraduate at McAllister in St. Paul and then went to law school at the University of Minnesota. Um, and when I was in law school, even my 1L year, I had no idea that large law firms even existed. I just thought law was cool. Um, and so then I learned about these large law firms and I started working at Fredrickson during my second year of law school. So in fall of 2005, right before I was a summer associate at Fredrickson and, um, really, really loved it. Um, you know, law firms, they say like have a culture. And when I was in law school, I was like, no, that's not true. A law Mm -hmm. firm's a law firm. Um, but when I was here, I really like felt that culture where everyone, is very unique and kind of individualism is really respected. So there's no like cookie cut lawyers at Fredrickson, which is what I really liked. Um, And I liked how the firm um, is very entrepreneurial. So it lets you kind of make your own practice, build your practice, set your own destiny. And so I really love the people here and kind of how it operated. So ever since then I was like, well, this is gonna be my work home
2: forever. But your practice area in state local is not a natural segue right? You could have been a litigator in employment law or, you know, I mean, a lot of contract law, you know, construction. I mean, totally. you're state so, local. Yeah. So what about that?
1: The very first project that I did as like a baby law student was a state and local tax project. It was just coincidence and happenstance. Huh. And um, it was with right. um, the person who would become my like forever mentor, Tom Muck. And, you know, he saw this little law student law clerk and thought like, what a great person to do a 50 state survey for me. <laughs> um, and it was, it was, a you know, it was, it was a little tedious, but it was a lot of fun. And I, I loved working with him. And at the end of the day, you know, I knew that I wanted to work with someone who would be really, really amazing to work with. And he was that person. And I was like, it doesn't matter what kind of law we're going to practice um, because I really want to work with you. But also I found it obviously like fascinating and intellectually
2: stimulating.
1: And so that's how I became a state and local tax lawyer.
2: Yeah, that's really funny. Really? And then that continued from there. Yep. Right. Okay. Yeah. It- yeah. That's kind of I mean, mayor and I too, we all fell into state and local. Like it wasn't, I'm a masters of tax lawyer as well, but I did federal compliance. And then I got outsourced to do sales tax returns. And I'm like, this is really interesting. Hmm. This is a whole practice area that no one's really paying attention to. I kind of like it. And it doesn't have an April 15th deadline. It's kind of a different deadline, you know? Totally. And then process. like
1: everyone you meet in the SALT community is amazing, right? And it's like when we go to conferences and we love everyone we hang out with, like everyone in the SALT community is just so great and fun. And it's like you tell people like, I'm hanging out with a bunch of tax lawyers. They're like, wow, that must be a party. But like, it is. <laughs> it kind of is.
2: yeah. Well, it's true, and there is a little nuance to our little. We have a little bit of a. It's just very different in how we practice. I think is you're correct. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because that same summer in
0: 2005, it was my first internship at KPMG, and I also did a 50 state study. It was on the down. It was on the taxability of downloaded movies, which didn't exist in
2: 2005. It was very new. We wouldn't have made it through COVID <laughs> without streaming. Yeah. I did Netflix. They were my client and they were selling discs then, right? Shipping discs. It was like, do you have tax, you know, what do you do? You have sales tax duty in every home, right? Even the home rule cities of Colorado. So huge compliance because they're got the membership of the disc rental and then they streamed to streaming. So I'm one of the first Netflixians. um, I subscribed because I was like, oh, they're my client. I'm going to go ahead and do work for them or buy their service. I've still been doing it. I remember when they were going to switch to streaming. I'm like, what is that? Now I don't even have a CD player. Like, right. I can't even play a disc if I wanted to. yeah. My dad yeah. just asked me for a DVD player for his birthday. I'm like, do they sell those still? I think so. In fact, I was holding on to some of my discs from Netflix for a while. I'm like, I need to send those back. But mm-hmm. like, what are they going to do with them? They're worth nothing, right? On the right? secondary market. Yeah, it's, well, I guess in other countries, they just uh, gobble them up mm-hmm. and send them to other countries that don't have the same technology that you and I Although have. Although we
0: still just, we still pull out our discs. We have little kids and when your internet doesn't work and they want to watch a movie, we still have yeah. that library of of DVDs because they That's can't always rely on the internet. Yeah, I like it. Circling back, what kind of law, uh, you know, obviously specifically to state and local tax, but what type of law are you kind of practicing today? Um, you know, you're kind of a big deal. You did just litigate something in front of the Minnesota Supreme Court. So I know you're not allowed to talk a lot about that, exciting. but, you know, obviously you're... You're showing up in court, you're litigating things. So what kind of what does your practice look like?
1: Yeah. So I chair um Frederickson's tax disputes and litigation group. And so that actually covers all types of tax controversies and even pre-controversy work. So like pre-controversy would be like voluntary disclosures or taxability or nexus evaluations, right? And then controversy work, so audits, appeals, tax court litigation and appellate litigation. So I kind of oversee all of that. I don't necessarily personally do each of those things, but I do most of them um, kind of as they come up. Um, when I started out 16 years ago, practice was very heavily focused, and my practice was very heavily focused just on Minnesota state tax controversy work. Um, but then right, with right. years, like, we added on to that. So then there were other states and then there were um, there was federal controversy and various tax types. And so it's really grown in kind of breadth, I would say, over the past 16 years in terms of what our practice is like.
2: And then how do you deal with the licensure issue, given you're a Minnesota attorney? I assume you're not licensed in every um, state. Nope. So, so, is yeah, that so by- I'm
1: licensed in Wisconsin and then we have an office in um in North Dakota, we have two offices actually. So we have folks who are licensed in North Dakota and South Dakota, and we have an Iowa office as well. Um, but also, it's just the amazing network of state and local tax lawyers across the country where, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we need to go into court in another state, we will partner with. Um, Local council in that state, and that works really well. And I do think it's important to do that because knowing kind of the people on the ground, whether it's at the department or um, as opposing council or the court, um, it's really good to have local representation and local flavor. So I'm a big proponent of that, um, and have really enjoyed getting to know people kind of around the country in that capacity. And sometimes I function in that capacity, right? So people will say like, hey, yeah. Yeah. we need Minnesota local council, um, or we need someone in North Dakota or Wisconsin. And so we can help out with that too.
2: And then what about if you do a multi-state study, right? I mean, that's sort of practicing in other areas, sort of. We do those. So how do you deal with that from the expertise standpoint? Yeah, so you know, making sure you got it right. same idea,
1: you draw on folks, you know, if there's lack of clarity in a space um, uh, from around the country to the extent there is clarity, you know, it's (laughs) easy. But, you know, in terms of like practice of law, really that comes into play more in litigation. So anything that's pre-litigation is really permissible under the ethics rules because it's a multi-state or a nationwide practice that's substantially similar to the representation you have of your clients in the state where you're
2: practicing your license. Yeah, that's a big deal, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, and kind of playing off that, you know, one of how we know you, you know, is through kind of your leadership positions in various organizations. What kind of leadership positions have you had? Obviously, you have something specific, um, you know, to Frederickson and leading that group um, kind of on those national kind of committees, organizations that help you maintain that. Web of you know resources and friendships that you you know kind of come to rely on as you're dealing with the law and outside of your you know licensure state.
1: Yeah, so I've been on several um, like planning committees for IPT, for example. So you make a lot of contacts and get to know a lot of people through IPT, and then also through the American Bar Association Salt Section. So I'm on the um, executive committee for that, and you just meet a lot of people that way. I you know, actively participate in cost events and kind of other national organizations. And you just sort of start getting to know people, your peers all across the country through those types of organizations.
2: And I guess we should explain who cost is to the audience. Like, I think a lot of people do not know who cost is, especially in the small to medium business space. They don't know what that is because that's only lar- large multinational companies that, that belong to that. Typically, you don't see the mom and pops that are might be multi-state not being actively involved. Yeah, so COST so is, is the
1: Council on State Taxation. It's a nonprofit organization that represents large taxpayers. So it's a taxpayer organization and they put on um, continuing education, but they also do you know, lobbying efforts. So they monitor legislation on a multi-state mm-hmm. basis and get involved and testify um, as appropriate. It. They also, um, file amicus briefs. Um, so in active litigation that their members have an interest in. Um, so it's a really, it's a really great organization for taxpayers.
2: Did they weigh in on Wayfair? Do they provide um, an amicus brief? I'm Do you sure. Know? I can't remember. Yeah. I feel like I was trying to think of like all the different organizations yeah. that weighed in on that. Yeah. I was trying, cause I quite a few. Yeah. I'm not sure that, that went out.
1: did, um, another organization, I think think probably did was the American College of Tax Counsel, ACTC. So that, that's another oh, organization. Okay. Um, so there's just a lot of national organizations of tax attorneys and state and local tax practitioners that are, I think, really great to participate in to get to know your peers and counterparts all across the
2: country. Right. Because that's, I mean, state and local law yeah. is local. <laughs> so you have to understand, I was just in Charleston, um, South Carolina and Savannah, Georgia and those those state cities have been around a very long time and they have a whole set of policies that you know impacted our nation. Yeah. hundreds of years ago that had rolled across America. You know, I, I grew up in California. So and I live in Colorado, very different tax policies between the two states for the needs of the citizenry, the, the volume, the, the the industries that we have in our state, very different tax policies. So it was very interesting to kind of really physically see the spaces and see how the shipping industry particularly influenced A lot of um, the business there and and then schools and education was another big area of industry there. And then you've got all the tourism, but that's not how it grew up, right? So there were strategic reasons for those locations and very much defensive of like other people invading Mm -hmm. us. So that creates a different issue. We mm-hmm. didn't really have that in Colorado. We're in Colorado. You know what I mean? So, you know, you've got, we've got some of the reservation issues and all that because you had everybody move west and you had the Indian population. So you just have all these things mm-hmm. that affect policy um, and and citing yourself in a home and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it really impacts like how those laws are evolving yeah. in our nation and mm-hmm. tourism taxes. Who knew there were all these little fees on things? Uh if you took a carriage tour in Savannah, there's a little tourism tax on it. Huh. A little grab bag for the visitor to this, you know, Savannah and Charleston. There's other little taxes that you don't normally see imposed just by consuming are things taxes as you're guest. I you know, I don't know. They're just <laughs> on my invoice a couple bucks here and there. I'm like, interesting. I didn't know there was a tourism tax on a carriage ride.
0: Yeah, but funny how you notice those things when uh when you when you spend like your nine to five that. plus in that fee versus tax world, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I guess kind of in that vein, we you know kind of personally have seen a lot of uptick in like enforcement and notices and just kind of like the pestering of taxpayers of and questioning what they're doing and kind of audits and whatnot. Are you are you experiencing that same? Trend or seeing a lot more, maybe, influx of that questioning of a taxpayer position.
1: Yes, kind of your I practice. think there has been for sure an uptick in audits. Specifically, I think I'm seeing a lot more nexus audits and 86 to 72 audits. I think that Yeah, that's an interesting one. That's the whole shift
2: in the last couple of years. Yeah, of it's huge.
1: So there's been a ton in that space. Same on like the individual side, because I work with high net worth individuals as well. So like residency audits are very much mm-hmm. on the rise. So again, same thing, kind of connection to state type audits. Um, Corporate income tax, like sourcing issues. I mean, it's like, what does market-based even mean Um, in so many different contexts? um, I'm still seeing um, business, non-business, unitary combination type audits sales tax space. I'm seeing marketplace audits. So kind of based on, because of the proliferation of all the marketplace laws across the country, faster than anything has ever happened ever in the history of state and local tax. (laughs) Two years. Right? Like, I mean, that's generating a ton of audits and confusion and controversy. And the auditors are confused by it because they don't know what the law means. And then the other space I'm seeing an increase in just like other, like miscellaneous taxes, like your tourism fee example. But like, just random taxes right on like various products that a state might have where there's just no guidance on it those are my favorite kind because it seems Mm -hmm. like the states are trying to come up with like some sort of positions on it where there has been no guidance at all and doing that through audit so it's kind of been interesting
0: i was gonna say another great example do you think a case will be brought to because minnesota just passed theirs Um, did. That that will be litigated, do you think, or questions? Or are they, you know, because a case was brought in Colorado, are they, you know, do you think it's just going to see well, what does Colorado do and is it worth litigating? Or is someone kind of getting ready to sue on whether or not... But it's not even, yeah, it's I not even that, ready I think it'll yet be some time. No like, yeah, I think we'll
1: have to see how it works and what taxpayers end up doing with it and how the state ends up trying to enforce it. And then we'll see kind of what the controversy looks like. So I, I'm guessing we're a good couple years, few years away from any real controversy yeah, before in that you see space.
0: it. Yeah, because I mean, Colorado had to renege on some of their positions just this last le- legislative
2: session, right? Where they didn't really renege. Well, we pushed them to. I'm on a coalition to simplify because they, they just—it was so onerous for small to medium business. But even the small to medium business, was so low at half a million. I mean, come on, like we're talking thirty million. You're small to medium business. Well, but even I'm like sorry. the the original language
0: stating that it had to be collected from your customer and on an oh, invoice yeah. collected. Where yes. the department kind of said, uh-huh. like unofficially, we're not gonna chart. Like it's okay if you kind of eat that. But now it's like official, you don't have to
2: pass it along to your customer and you can kind of assess it on the back end. And then we had a huge issue with our cities where our cities want to tax it because it's a mandatory fee that's associated with shipping and handling and they tax it. They tax shipping and handling. So we had to fight that battle internally to say back off and Denver agreed and then everybody kind of followed suit, but we never know. Yeah, because then that tax becomes $0.30 cents instead right. of twenty I cents Yeah, I
1: can't wait to see so, what we do in Minnesota with it. It's going to be really exciting. But I do think there are lessons learned out of Colorado. So thank you for going first.
0: Right. Well, you at least I'll. We never go first. We, we like maybe to go first. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, except for maybe on, like, you know, hallucinogens and drugs. We're on yeah. the cutting edge of, um, right. you know. We're ready to shroom, everyone. <laughs> Got to figure it out. It's a new thing. Um Probably maybe some litigation on the bag or bag fee. Sorry, I had the bag fee in my head when you're talking about locals. Um, the delivery fee. Anything else you think that might, you know, might not have the ear of the of departments from like an audit perspective that but you think might kind of be the next hot ticket item from jurisdictions to start picking
1: on? Um, like, in, I think in terms of audit trends, I think it's kind of what we've talked about a little bit, which is I think they're going to be going after 86 two seventy-two really hard. Um, and that is getting litigated and it's going to be litigated more and more. And I do think it's an area where we're finally going to get more guidance across the country from more and more courts. So especially with the MTC position on the website um, interaction yep. and, you know, that's being litigated in California. Um, but not like as an assessment type challenge. So that will be interesting. Minnesota came out with a draft revenue notice that was very, um, sub- I would say substantially identical to the MTC position. So that's still in draft form, but I, I think there's just going to be a lot of litigation in that space in 86-72 because with, you know, with the MTC guidance, it's any, anyone with a modern website cannot have protection according to the MTC anywhere in the country. Right. So right. no matter where the website's hosted. Right. So I just, I think that that's just going to continue um, going through litigation because it's, I mean, it's an all or nothing proposition for companies who have been relying on 86 to 72 and it's an ongoing issue. So that one's a little bit hard sometimes to resolve unless there's been a change in facts and the taxpayer goes like, yeah, I mean, now we're really present in the state anyway. Then there's resolution. But for mm-hmm. taxpayers who are going to continue taking 86 to 72 protection positions, I mean, litigation is sort of the only answer.
2: Yeah. And then at some point you're like, crud. Right. I mean, you get the credit for the tax, you know, so is it just a bunch of more compliance? I mean, that's, you know, of course, with remote employees. I mean, I tell some of my clients it's three to five thousand a year and oh, just yeah. compliance costs to hire a remote employee. I'm sorry. Like you didn't realize your agnostic hiring policy was going to create all this compliance. I mean, you're there and you may not make any money there. But you still have all these compliance duties. That's yep, the reality. I think that the other piece we're gonna see. So I think a lot of people yep, don't realize that. I think we're that. gonna see more of
1: that too, where it's like, what's the impact of remote employees? And are we gonna have more withholding audits? And are mm-hmm. the states that require withholding on day one? going to start being active in that space just because remote work has become so much more prevalent. And some companies have really Mm -hmm. good policies in place and some are just sort of like finding out that they have employees in all sorts of different states and didn't have a chance to address the tax impacts up front and are sort of scrambling and like, oh shoot, does that mean we have to file an income tax return and a sales tax return? Um, What property do we all of a sudden have in the space that this employee brought with them? And I, I think that's a really, really big right now in um, in the advice side because I think the taxpayers and clients are kind of trying to figure out what do we do with all these remote workers. I think that will transition to the states doing something about it too. Although you'd be surprised. Ask I think the it's state, great. A government employee like oh ha- did you get withheld on when you traveled for work
2: <laughs> right and then they go oh shoot, for a care? remote yeah. for a remote audit right no um, yeah it's a little yeah, bit hypocritical so it'll be isn't it. it interesting to see
1: how that develops <laughs> I think.
2: I just feel like with Wayfair, I mean, that has been the biggest thing. I mean, that happened in 2018. I remember being in, I was in Ireland and that case came through and I remember when my client wishing me like, congratulations, right? And I'm thinking, yeah, because, and then it just went crazy across our nation. I mean, you've never seen laws be enacted. And then I, I thought they wouldn't do the marketplace laws. I'm like, you got them with Wayfair, you don't need marketplace, but they did. So that was kind of an interesting, like, yep. follow on. I thought, and then I thought, now that PLA 86272 is just a matter of you're just going to file all this stuff. What we find when we run analyses of 86272 consequence very minimal taxes owed for direct shipments of even goods, you just don't have a ton of apportionment. But that filing, you know, so it's like if they don't owe a lot of tax, it's mm-hmm. just a lot of compliance. So just curious, but I don't see the states giving that up. I was watching the play 1776. This play was done in like the 50s. And it talks about states' rights and how we separated and chose to go to war with England. And absolutely all those um, senators were like, we will protect Virginia, protect Washington and York and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was all wrangling Mm -hmm. to have states' rights. And it was funny to think of our career all these years later of like, That's the beginning. People go, why is this happening? like, because we let states have rights from the get-go. We didn't want a federal oversight of the state's decision-making. We didn't want a king. Nope. Well, now we don't have one. We have a lot of kings. We have a lot of kings in America. Right, now it provides us with a lot of job security, huh? I know, who (laughs) the (laughs) fuck?
0: This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.